Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. With Earth Day on the near horizon, I'm delighted to welcome here today two folks to speak of reconnecting with and healing the earth. Ruth Ann Purchase introduced me to Chief Richard Quiet Thunder Gilbert, who was the tribal chief of the Nanticoke Lenni Lenape of Bridgeton, New Jersey, for 13 years. In his 86 years on this planet, Quiet Thunder has deeply entwined with the ways of Mother Earth and has taught and inspired many people, Native American and otherwise, on the path to wholeness and healing. He's co author of the upcoming book. The Seventh Generation, Quiet Thunder Speaks, and he and Ruth Ann Purchase join us today by phone. Ruth Ann, I'm so thankful that you set up my interview with Chief Quiet Thunder today for Spirit in Action. Thank you, Mark. I'm excited that we're getting to do this. It's a privilege to have the three of us on the phone together. And as I already mentioned, Chief Richard Quiet Thunder Gilbert is on the phone. Dick, thank you so much for joining me for Spirit in Action. It's my pleasure. So just to review, my connection to you, Dick, comes through Ruth Ann and comes through her son, Simon James, who I met some six years ago at a National Quaker gathering, a course on permaculture. He connected me up with Ruth so that we could meet you, so we could have some of the blessings of the knowledge and experience that you have, Dick, here for Spirit in Action. Ruth Ann, thank you so much again for connecting me up. And what exactly has been your connection over time with Chief Gilbert? Well, it's been an interesting journey, but to put it briefly, I live on the Lipsick River, and when you ride down the Lipsick River out into the Delaware Bay and cross the bay, directly across the bay is the Cohansey River, and that's where my mother was born and where her mother was a midwife. And Chief Gilbert was the chief of that community. Our two communities are cousin communities. So I live and work with the Lenape Indian Tribe of Delaware, and he married into this community. So he now lives in this area, and we have so many common friends. And I have such a great respect for the investment he has made in my education and in our community cohesiveness and in our training of our young people. So that's one of the reasons why I'm connected to him, but I also just long to capture some of the wisdom of our elders and be able to pass that forward into future generations. So that's another reason why I'm so excited to connect the two of you together. Dick, you've consented to do this. I understand that you have a book that's going to be released before too long. I imagine things with the coronavirus have delayed some of the implementation that you were doing. But you've been trying to capture some of this knowledge and this experience for future generations. How is the book coming along? What's the projections of when that's going to be available to the general populace? Well, it'll be available early this spring. We've had three different authors that have reviewed it, and uh, they're very impressed with it. One of the comments was it gives an insight 
to the way that the Lenape lived their connection to the land, that they feel as though this is something that people should know about. It's been so many fallacies that's been written about the Lenai Lenape that I bring to bear that I find is so necessary because uh, these fallacies gave a very negative, false impression, and this had to be cleared up. So when I say truth crushed earth will rise again, I feel that I'm a part of that truth. And in my travels, I find that the audiences are very receptive to this. So many things that's been written that they've come to understand was not the Lenape. That was something that had been written uh, as fact, but it really wasn't a fact. It was an opinion and a a slanted opinion at that. But I, I do hope by the time we're finished talking today, people will have enough insight so that if they get your book called The Seventh Generation, that they'll have a pretty full grasp. I don't know, is it something that you feel you can convey reasonably well in a 55-minute program? I can try. In essence, it's not something new. It's something that has been with my people for generations. Nobody knows how far back it goes, but it had almost been lost because we got caught up in this modern world. But in essence, it means this. All the gifts that we enjoy in nature today, we have a sacred obligation to try to make sure that seven generations in the future will have those same gifts, not just live for oneself or live for today or tomorrow, but for seven generations. Now, when the Creator placed us here upon the turtle's back, we were given the sacred obligation. As long as we were in control of the land, we stood by that sacred obligation. Well, we're no longer in control of the land, but we still have that sacred obligation. And when I meet people, I try to pass this on to them, maybe not as a sacred obligation, but as a common sense obligation. Without Mother Earth, we don't even exist. I find that a modern man has let themselves get to the point where they feel that they're superior to nature. You can't be superior to something that without it you don't exist. So it's based on God's creation, which is nature, that supplies everything for us. And I use demonstrations such as when the Lenape would step from their wigwam each morning, walk to the stream, cleanse themselves, and then turn to the east, and as the sun would rise, they would pray. The Europeans wrote that we were praying to the sun as a sun god, but that's not exactly true. What is true? We could see God's power manifested in that huge ball of fire, light, warmth, and the promise of a new day. But we could also see God's power in the wind, the rain, the snow, the mountains, the forests, the rivers, the lakes, the streams, the birds, the animals, all of creation. We could see God's power because we knew that man could not duplicate these things. And we found our place in this whole understanding. And part of that was that sacred obligation to protect this. 
So these are the things that I try to bring to bear for people to understand that we understood where we stood in this whole scheme of life. And man has somehow let themselves get to the point where they can't see that. And it's causing serious problems. Now, my understanding is all about balance. And this balance is crucial. Try to visualize a clock where one gear comes down, hits another gear, that triggers another gear, another gear. And that's what makes that whole clock work. Tick by tick. Well, in a sense, that's how nature is. Everything is responsible to the next thing. Not being a scientist and having a limited formal education, I try to give an example that people can see. The earth is round. No beginning, no end. Continuing education. Continuing energy. This ball spins on its axis. We have the four directions, the four winds, the four seasons. These are all in cycles. Same principle. No beginning, no end. Continuing energy. Human life, even existent is from infancy to childhood to adulthood to old age and back to Mother Earth to continue. Continuing energy. These are all part of a natural system of balance. And this balance is what makes everything work. When something is removed from this balance, it creates an imbalance. Now, when you remove something from this natural balance, you must do it very delicately and very spiritually. Such as the night before the hunter would hunt the deer, they would build a sweat lodge, cleanse themselves physically and spiritually. The next morning before the sun would rise, the hunter would walk to the stream, cleanse themselves, rub aromatic leaves into their bodies, and face the east, and as the sun would rise, they would pray. When they harvested a deer, they would pray, forgive me, brother, but I must take your life in order for my family to live. But each time I pass through the forest where you sacrificed your life for my family, I will stop and I will say a prayer and I will give an offering. Sometimes that offering would be corn, which is a very sacred plant to Indian people. At one time, it only grew here in this hemisphere, nowhere else in the world. And this gift from the Creator to Indian people, Indian people in return has given this gift to the entire world. The corn feeds the entire world today. Sometimes it would be tobacco, also at one time only grew in this hemisphere, it is used 
in many of our ceremonies, symbolically, the smoke from the tobacco carries our prayers up to the Creator. And in my case, it has very special meaning because I came in the world June 13, 1934, that spring, that first winter, I came down with pneumonia. And it was at a place and a time where doctors were reluctant to minister to Indian people. And only by the grace of the Creator and the fact that my grandmother still remembered the old medicines, that's what pulled me through. One of those medicines had tobacco. So I was introduced to tobacco at a very, very early age. Now, I'd like to talk about that time period with me because these bouts with pneumonia for the next nine winters where I was very close to death, fevers where it was like fog, but I could always remember seeing my grandmother's face and her hand reaching through the fog, pulling me back from death. She would not let me die. As I got a little older, I started to understand some things. And when it was possible, she would take me with her to gather some of these medicines in the woods and the swamps and the fields. And I realized that these medicines were not coming from a drugstore. It wasn't a druggist that was mentioned. And it wasn't patent medicine. It was medicine that God had placed here. So I started to realize a real connection. And I, each winter would still be close to death, but each winter I got a little stronger. And as I got stronger, my grandmother would take me with her more and more. And she would go to gather the medicines. And I started to develop a connection to the natural world. And there's one episode that stays with me. It's rarely a day goes by that I, I don't think about it. I must have been about five or six, and it was the spring morning. And my grandmother, when it was possible, she would always have me up when the sun rose. She always said it was a lot of power in that morning sunrise. And she took me by the hand and walked me not too far from the house. It was a wild strawberry patch, and she sat me down and instructed me to only eat the red berries. Now, back then, the berries wasn't no bigger than your little fingernail, but was sweet as sugar. And I remember sitting there eating these berries and the sweet taste in my mouth. And I could feel this cool breeze on my cheek. And I remember looking up at the sky and seeing this beautiful blue sky and fluffy white clouds. And I started to feel a very strange feeling coming into my body. And the little baby rabbits were coming into the strawberry patch to feed. And the box turtles. And that morning... I didn't understand what had taken place, but as I got older, it started to sink in. 
my grandmother had spiritually connected me to the Mother Earth. And that connection has stayed with me all my life. I was considered a strange little kid because I was always roaming around the woods and the swamps and the creeks. I was very different from the other kids. But that connection has helped to develop me to understand who I am, where I am, and now even why I am. I am a part of that truth that was crushed to earth. And I feel sincerely that the traditional Indian is the living conscience of this nation today. We only get this one earth, and we need to go back to that old way of looking at the earth. Maybe not as a sacred obligation, but as a common sense obligation. I'm pretty sure that for our culture, this is a hard change to make because we're so used to thinking we're great, we know best. One of the things, I I just finished reading recently Robin Kimmerer's book, Braiding Sweetgrass. It's a beautiful book, and it it overlaps certainly with insights that you're talking about and folks, we are speaking with Chief Richard Quiet Thunder Gilbert of the Lenape people. And one of the things that she mentions in there, which has to do with this pride that we have, we think we are the only people. I believe that because of that, we feel superior because we are the only people. I don't think that's the same worldview that the Lenape or many other indigenous people of the world use. How do you see our place relative to the rest of the world? Well, she's correct that our ego has uh, taken control to the point where we feel that we're superior and that we know everything, and uh, we really don't. This connection, because... Modern man, he's caught up in a technology that actually takes you away from the natural understandings. I believe that all this technology actually blinds people to what is real. It gives a, an artificial sense of looking at things. The first thing that has to take place is to change the mindset that we're not superior to nature, that without nature we do not exist. And you do that in many ways. One is to bring the understanding that one of the basic things that we are doing that is destroying the water, the very essence of what life is about is the water. And We're doing something to the water that is really insane. But our superior thinking, this idea that we're superior, it blinds us to the point that we can't see that we're sealing off tomorrow's world. And it's just one part of this. And this technology is such that I had a minister recently tell me that young people 
just don't appreciate anything, Dick. And I said, well, the world they're living in is moving so fast that they don't get a chance to appreciate things. This morning's technology can be considered as the greatest technology that has ever come down the pike. Tomorrow, that technology is obsolete. They've moved on to something else and something else. <laughs> well, I, I'll give you, for instance, and it's, it all deals with the simplicity. In the spring, when the strawberries would ripen, this was a, an, an occasion. The strawberry was the first spring fruit. A lot of power in that fruit. We would have these ceremonies dealing with the strawberries. Today, many of the churches and little towns and hamlets, they have strawberry festivals, not even realizing that that's based on the Lenape strawberry ceremonies. Well, that would be an occasion, and the young people would remember that growing up, just like today, children remember Halloween and Thanksgiving and Christmas. It would be an occasion. And the Lenapes would grow up looking forward to that each spring. That would be an occasion. In the spring, many of the people would leave their, their winter villages and walk to the Delaware River in preparation for the large schools of fish that would come up the river to spawn the shad, the herring. And some of the young people would go along with the, some of the adults that would harvest these fish. Well, that also was an occasion. It was like an adventure. And the young people couldn't wait until the year when they would be old enough to go. Again, occasions. These would be events that were a part of their growing up. And they learned from these things that this was a part of who they were. But they always had this in mind. You never take more than you need. And you always try to put something back in its place to maintain that balance. When it's not possible to put something back in its place, at least take the time to say a silent prayer to let the Creator know that you are held accountable for your actions. That balance of nature was something that Indian people were very aware of. Something that uh, happened after European contact in the Plains states, when they saw the slaughter that was taking place with the buffalo, they were really upset, not just because of the buffalo playing such an important role in their, their existence, but they knew that when you removed that amount from the balance of nature, and to waste so much of that animal that this was going to create something that they didn't understand. They knew it would be something devastating. And it was because the plains now are not like the plains prior to contact. That animal played such an important role in the balance of the plains area. Well, this balance has been interrupted for quite some time now. We have no idea how many species 
has been totally wiped out. And that's something that is dealing with this balance today that is, I believe, creating this turmoil with man and nature. Dick, we're going to visit more with you, but right now I have to let our radio listeners know that they are tuned in to Spirit in Action. On the web, you find us at northernspiritradio.org with almost 15 years of our programs for your listening and download. And today we're speaking with Chief Richard Quiet Thunder Gilbert. Dick lives right on the banks of the Delaware River, has been chief of the Lenape tribe. And I want to ask some more about that in a little bit, too. But we also have here with us Ruth Ann Purchase, who graciously connected me with Dick. And again, Ruth Ann, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Anishi Remy. One of the questions that just came into my mind while you were talking, Chief Gilbert, is about the sturgeon. I wonder if you remember when there were sturgeon. And I also wonder if you have a word of encouragement to the young people who are working so hard to learn a new way and convince their parents and their grandparents to live more gently with the earth. Well, I'm glad you brought up the word sturgeon. I spent probably half of my childhood growing up along the Woodbury Creek, and it was something that took place with me pretty much every day during the warm weather. That area where I grew up, uh, things hadn't changed very much in almost 100 years, and it didn't start changing until right near the tail end of the Second World War and uh, right after the Second World War. It was one dirt road, single lane, car lane, down through the woods on my way to the creek and each morning I would and I never saw a vehicle on that road and there was a spring right on the side of the road and the water would bubble up crystal clear and ice cold on the, the hottest day of the summer and I had placed rocks around it and that was an event with me each morning on my way to the creek I would stop and I would pray and I would drink from this spring, and it was a ritual with me. I did that for a number of years, and right near the tail end of the Second World War, that morning I had stopped and had my cool drink. And that afternoon on my way home, a road grader had come through and widened that road and had totally destroyed my spring. Well, it upset me, and I remember telling my father about it, and uh, just like it happened this morning, we were in the backyard, and he said, yes, Dick, things are changing, and there's nothing we can do about it. Our time has come and gone. It is a white man's world now, and only he will let you live in it. Well, that same summer... I would get to the creek, and I would try to be there before that sun rose completely up. And I fished for a while, and then the tide started getting too low, and the fish stopped biting. I was just sitting there, 
enjoying listening to the red-winged blackbirds in the meadows. So incidentally, when I was growing up, our meadows had wild rice, not Phragmites. I never saw a Phragmite until in 1956 when I came out of the Air Force. That's when I started to see these Phragmites. Well, the tide had got low, and off from the bank, I could see this huge fish. I'd never seen a fish that big before. And I, at first, I thought it was just maybe an exceptionally large carp. And I had a fish spear, which I have in, in my uh, selection of things that I take into the schools. And I waded in, and I was going to try to get close enough where I could spear the fish. Well, I could see the fish getting nervous like it was getting ready to bolt. And when it bolted, instead of going away from me, it swam past me, I guess heading for deeper water. And I threw the spear, and fortunately, it hit the fish in the side. And I grabbed the spear, and I was still a skinny kid because those those fevers each winter would strip me down. And I guess if somebody could have seen this big fish dragging this skinny kid up the creek, it would have been pretty hilarious. Well, there was one branch of the creek that went off into the meadow. And it was a mud flat there, and I was able to force the fish up on this mud flat. And I had never seen anything like this before. And that afternoon, I, I drug him home, and it took me about two hours to drag him home because I could only drag him so far, and then I was exhausted, and I have to rest. My father was in the backyard, and uh, I felt pretty proud when I drugged this fish in the yard. And he told me what it was. It was Atlantic sturgeon. I, I'd never heard of it before. And uh, he said that they used to come into the creek when he was a boy, but they hadn't hadn't been in the creek in years. So that was my first episode and only episode with the sturgeon. And he told me I was fortunate that the spear hit the fish in the side because along the, the back of the, the sturgeon, it was like armor plate. It would never have penetrated. And one of the reasons, it's a two-pronged spear, and in the center, it has like a jaggered piece that when that went in the meat, that jaggered part hooked. And when I grabbed the spear, because if it had been straight, it would have pulled the, the spear out. But that jaggered center piece is what hooked in the meat, and it wouldn't come out. You had to manipulate it to get it out. Well, that was my first and only episode with Sturgeon, and uh, I, I remember it just like it happened this morning. Now, I had been taught that nature was all-powerful. There was nothing more powerful than nature. And during the day in, in the creek, every rock, every root would just have clusters of these black mussels and that's what I would eat during the day, these freshwater mussels and wild pepper. And I noticed this one spring, they wasn't as plentiful as they had been. And before, it was just clusters of them everywhere you looked. Well, I wasn't alarmed because I had been taught that in nature you have these cycles. Uh, some things you have a 
a high cycle, and then later you'll have a low cycle. So I wasn't really alarmed. I was aware, but I wasn't alarmed. And I mentioned it to my father one time in the backyard that uh, the muscles were, wasn't as plentiful that, that spring. He didn't comment. Well, a few days later, same situation. Uh, I got there early, and as the tide got too low and the fish stopped biting, I was waiting for the tide to get low enough where I could go and catch the fish under the rocks and in the roots. And my father came down. It was two trails. One came parallel along the creek, and then it was one trail up high that came down through the tulip poplar and, and the oak trees, and that led down to this part of the, the, the bank where I would fish. We just sat there and enjoying listening to the red-winged blackbirds in the meadow. When the tide got low enough, we waded in, and he saw something that I had missed. That same mud flat where I had been able to get the sturgeon up on, it was these little pools of a real faint, oily film. And he said he thought that had something to do with the muscles disappearing because he knew that was out of place. Well, at the time, I had never heard the word pollution. I had no, no understanding of it. But we found out later on that during the war effort along the Delaware River, the manufacturers would dump all their waste right into the river, and that waste would wind up coming back into the back creeks and by mussels being bivalves getting their sustenance directly from the water. That's what was killing them. When I came out of the service, I never saw another freshwater mussel in that creek. And the only place I ever saw any was was an old Italian farmer that used to let me hunt deer on his property. And he had a lot of way in the back part of those woods was a freshwater stream. That was the only place I saw these freshwater mussels again. So that was my episode with the, the sturgeon and the mussels. It must be exciting for you to be helping the tribal youth group learn about how to restore the freshwater mussels since we got this grant to teach the young people how to restore the freshwater mussels and learn the iNaturalist app and all that. I hope someday they'll get to hear your stories and be encouraged. And I would like you to give us some words of encouragement, because I know that you have suggestions for rebalancing the way we live and for giving people hope that we can change. Well, change is, is the word, change in the mindset. Until that happens, uh, this continuation of the destruction of the natural world will continue. Now, I have no idea how long that will take, Hopefully, the book, The Seventh Generation, will enlighten people to the point where they understand that this mindset has to change, or else there'll be no seventh generation. On my wall, we have a painting that a friend of my wife made with a saying. It says, Indian proverb under it. It says, 
The frog does not drink up the pond in which it lives. And that feels to me like a fundamental mindset change that we need about how we relate to the land, to the water, to the other animals that share the earth with us, how we relate to the plants. That's a very enlightening illustration. Now, the purpose is to try to get people to relate to themselves as the frog. And that's a monumental project because Mm. in the mindset of people, a frog is of no significance. Uh, They see it, but because it's so significant and the simplicity of it is so powerful that modern man can't see it. The frog is of no significance. That mindset must be changed. Now, recently, Ruth Ann sat in on a project. There was a conference up in Trenton dealing with uh, the watersheds, the river watersheds. And there was a chief from the Ramapo Mountain Lenape, uh, Vincent Mann, was a guest speaker, and myself, and Ruthann. And they wanted to uh, know what each of us, what our Indian vision was. And my vision was that that sacred obligation that was given to my people to protect this land as a sacred obligation, my vision was that I hope that modern man would recognize, acknowledge that same obligation. And they wanted to know, well, how do you do that? And my suggestion was to spend more time in the natural world, try to build a personal relationship with the natural world, as I did as a young boy growing up. Uh, You can't do it from a distance. You can't do it with a book. You have to be in that water, feel that water, understand that all life, and you're part of it, and you must protect it. As you speak, Dick, about eating the mussels, just, you know, there's, you know where your snack is placed. I have a friend, Sam Thayer Price, who teaches foraging, wild foods, Is that available easily today to the Lenape people? No. I grew up unique. When I was coming along, most, including Lenapes, were caught up in the the way modern kids grew up, where by my grandmother introducing me to the natural world at such an early stage in life, that's where I spent my time with the kids that, grew up during that time frame, they were more into what was happening in the the modern world, and they were seeking these modern experiences where I sought what was taking place in that natural world. That's where I felt at home, at ease. With that said, the Lenape grew up connecting to this modern world, and over a period of time, they almost forgot who they were and where they were. And that's 
sad because now I not only just reach out to non-Indians, I have to try to reach out to Indians to get them to reconnect in who they are and where they are, and most of all, why they are. They are the people that were indigenous to this land, that the Creator had given that sacred obligation to protect this land. Now, some are slowly adhering to this, but unless you can change the mindset, it goes unheard. If I could interject here, there's a wonderful memory I have of our first citizen science training workshop with our tribal youth, and that's the first time I heard Chief Gilbert share about how um, I don't want to quote you inaccurately, and here you are. You could say it yourself. <laughs> but it had to do with recognizing our place as humans in this big ecosystem, in this big natural balance, and Mother Earth is working to heal herself, and we can cooperate or we can become a problem to her. <laughs> and I remember how many of the youth were so grateful that you were there giving your blessing on what they were doing. And we are teaching people, Mark, we are teaching people as we restore the freshwater mussel, do not eat it because we have to go quite a few generations forward before those toxins are removed from the streams and these freshwater mussels that are natural filters will be clean enough to eat. And I'm not sure how long that's going to take. It depends on how dirty the stream is. But it's part of our reintroduction of indigenous food and life ways to have to say to our young people, don't eat these. <laughs> Even though they're edible, we can't eat them yet, just like you wouldn't eat the filter on a cigarette. If, you know, people who are smokers have filters in their cigarettes so they don't get too much of the poison. And in the same way, when we pick up the first generations of freshwater mussels, those are full of toxins. And our young people need to educate the rest of the community that when they see these freshwater mussels, don't eat them yet. Let them reproduce and, and let them do their work of cleaning. And we can come alongside like allies of the mussels, allies of every aspect of nature, working together with Mother Earth's natural processes. And that's where we find our place. So it's, it's been a beautiful thing to have Chief Gilbert alongside young people who are waking up to this desire to be more active in environmental awareness and public education and restoration of the balance. And I have lots and lots of gratitude toward the elders who share their stories with us and encourage us and bless our work, our very action-oriented, out-in-nature work on the land. We're also doing a edible forest project where we're taking out the invasive species and restoring edible plants to a small piece of land that the Lenape Indian tribe of Delaware actually owns. And we're hoping to get so good at it, we'll be able to do that on other pieces of property too. I think that's one of the beautiful signs of hope that we can all take courage and take heart because the young people are enthusiastically wanting to restore healthy food and restore healthy living and 
learn all that they can. And I benefit because I'm in between the elders and the young people. And I get so much benefit bringing them together and coming alongside. It's an incredibly encouraging thing for me to participate in. And I do want our listeners for Spirit in Action to remember a little bit later this spring, Chief Richard Quiet Thunder Gilbert, Dick, as we've been speaking with him here today, will release his book, The Seventh Generation. I want a few more words about that, but mainly, Dick, I was just wondering, and I want to find hope. I want to believe. Uh, You know, it's the month of April right now. And for me, the one holiday that I absolutely support just with no troubled conscience is Earth Day, which has been celebrated since I turned 16. You have just very shortly 86 years on the planet. And I understand that for the last 30 years or so, you've been educating the young and the old in matters of protecting the Earth. Dick, are you receiving the ear that we know that the earth needs for us to heal our relationship with it? Is that ear there for your words, for your teachings, for your passing on what the Lenape? Yes, these things are making sense to them. Now, there's one school in particular. They go from preschool right up into high school. And I've been gone there for about 15 years now. I questioned the principal one time. was I making any headway with the students in the school? His reply was, did you notice that when you first started to come here, it was just the students and the teachers? But each year, parents started to come. And now it's parents and grandparents that sit in. So that's how you can tell if you're making any headway. So there's people that are listening now, back to the mussels, there's a project up on the Brandywine River that I'm involved with, and they deal with the, the waterways, and part of the project is dealing with the mussels. So they're keeping a check on not just the Brandywine, but waterways in Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and Delaware, and Maryland. So there are people that are studying and they're aware of many of the things that I'm talking about and uh, they they're doing things to try to clear these waterways up so yes there's hope and I'm hoping that the things that I talk about will dispel that hopelessness that some people have I don't believe the creator is going to let man destroy creation it did damage, there's no doubt about that, but I can't see something as great as this natural world that the Creator has created. I can't imagine the Creator letting man destroy that. Getting back to what Ruth Ann said about the cigarette filter, uh, that's a pretty good analogy with, with one exception. The filter don't taste good as like as like the the mussels do. That's true. That's true. <laughs> it's actually a nasty analogy, but it's the only one I can think of. <laughs> well, I do appreciate so deeply your words of hope and encouragement, but 
more specifically, the education example you've lived in your almost 86 years, it's so important to have elders who have seen what is wise and pass it along. And your many years walking on this earth doing that, Dick, have made all the difference to so many people. And I hope that there's many listeners today for Spirit in Action who hear what you've been doing, teaching, living, and that they'll pursue your book, The Seventh Generation. We'll have a link on northernspiritradio.org. Mostly all, I just want to say thank you, thank you, and thank you. Oh, it's my pleasure. When do you see Mark? Mark, have you uh, heard Ruth Ann speak the language before? Well, not too much, but you see up here, uh, the Anishinaabe people are the people I know. So oh, okay. uh, I, I end up learning the Anishinaabe words for this. Beautiful, <laughs> beautiful. And again, Ruth Ann, I want to thank you so much for connecting us up. I'm grateful just to know your son, Simon, but to have this additional connection with you and with all the way over to the Lenape people has been a deep healing thing for my heart. So thank you so much for doing that work, too. Thank you, Mark. And remember, folks, to come to NordenSpiritRadio.org, where you'll find several useful links, including a link to Chief Quiet Thunder's upcoming book, The Seventh Generation, and another of the books he's co-written, The Original People. And some of the work that Ruth Ann Purchase has facilitated with the Lenape people. We're going out today with a song on a bit of what you've heard spoken so powerfully here today. We Belong to the Earth is by Magpie. So thanks to Greg and Terry for their music. Thank you for joining us today, and we'll see you all next week for Spirit in Action. Here is We Belong to the Earth. We belong to the earth We all belong to the earth It's not that she belongs to us It's we belong to her It's we belong to her We belong to the earth We all belong to It's not that she belongs to us It's we belong to her It's we belong to her A strand in a web are we A strand in a web I believe To own it we cannot dare a seed of what will be it awakens a power that grows down below it courses through you and through me it courses through you and through me 
Theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. Oh